All right, let's pray. Father, we, uh, we come now and we open your word. We know that uh, your spirit inspired John to write these words almost 2,000 years ago. We know that they were entirely applicable to the people that he was first writing to. Through your providence, they've been preserved, passed on to us as part of your holy word, and they are completely applicable to us today. And so we come as your people, and uh, we submit ourselves to you and to your word. We ask that you'd help us to understand, uh, help us to know what you're asking of us, help us to know what to do and how to do it. And Lord, give us the, the courage or the discipline or whatever it is that we need in order to take those steps of obedience based on what you've said to us in your word this morning. Lord, for those who are here and uh, they've not yet placed their faith in you for salvation, have not yet uh, been born again, adopted into the family of God, Lord, would you work in them this morning, um, draw them into your family, draw them closer to, to your family, Lord, work in them, Holy Spirit, do the work that we cannot do, pray that you would be saving people through this church, you would be growing people into mature disciples who are then making disciples of other people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are looking in 1 John. If you've got a Bible, open it up to 1 John 2, 28. You'll find that on page 1022 if you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles. I will have things on the screen for you, but you can follow along by uh, reading in your own Bible or in one of the Black Pew Bibles. Again, 1 John 2, 28, page 1022 in the Pew Bibles. Now, the last few weeks... We focused on some verses in 1 John that deal with the idea of assurance. How can you be assured that you are in Christ? Or put another way, do you know what's going to happen to you when you die? Is it possible to know what will happen to you when you die? I wonder, do you think about that much? Or is that something that you only think about if the pastor asks you to think about it on Sunday morning? People in America are generally the wealthiest, the most, most comfortable, most secure people in the history of the world. And one of the side effects of that wealth, comfort, and security is that we are insulated from questions of eternity. We don't tend to think about life after death because we've got everything, basically, that we could need or want in this life. And so we're focused on this life. We don't tend to ask questions like, what happens to my soul after my body dies. Now, I was personally hopeful that COVID, the pandemic, would, uh, would bring these questions to the surface for many people in comfortable America. I hoped that, as in times past, when there was a, a large crisis, that it would bring millions of people into the family of Jesus as their lives are disrupted, as fear rises up, they don't know what's happening, and they start thinking about those big questions. Now, honestly, I haven't really seen that taking place yet with this pandemic, and I'm not sure why that is. All the other major challenges that we have faced as a country, we have seen revivals come out of those big challenges. Perhaps it's because uh, we feel like we've got this under control, and we've elevated science to a level of godhood, and we believe that we have manufactured a medical miracle. How could we even talk about us making a miracle? Yet that's what we think about it. And we feel like we've got this. We can handle this. But have you noticed how some of the emotions, the communications, how things have changed in the last couple of weeks as that dreaded Delta variant starts spreading through. Those who were feeling confident, we got this, 
Some of them are really scared now. You see it in personalities on, on TV and, and online. People, uh, people who were previously calm, cool, and collective, they're like, oh no, maybe we don't have this under control. It is my prayer that God would use that situation to cause people to ask big questions like, what happens to my soul after I die? If you are assured in your salvation, if you know that Jesus has saved you, well then, death is not a scary thing for you. You can face death with confidence, knowing that you live on for eternity with Jesus. But if you don't have that assurance, if you're simply hoping that maybe you're good enough, or maybe you've done enough of the right things, or few enough of the bad things, or whatever, or that somehow everybody gets in, or you get a a pass for something that you did, if you're just hoping in that, you don't have real assurance, well, then death is a scary thing. We see that rising in our culture these last couple weeks. Two weeks ago, we looked at some people, uh, John was talking about them, and they were people who trusted in a past event or a decision or maybe they prayed a prayer, or we might say, you know, walked an aisle to come forward and receive Jesus. Maybe they were baptized, maybe they're confirmed, whatever, but they look back and they say, that is the moment that I became a Christian, and yet their lives since then suggest that really nothing happened at that point. Their, their disobedience to the commands of Jesus is evidence against the, authentic, the authenticity of that particular event that they're putting their hope in. And John looks at them, and with a a tender, pastoral, fatherly tone, he says, wake up. You're fooling yourself. We looked last week at some people in in John's audience who had been part of the church in the region of Ephesus in what is today Turkey, and they'd been part of the church, but they had left They had been claiming to be, still claiming to be Christians. Other Christians had looked at them even as leaders, as teachers, as models. And yet John looked at them and then he he warned his readers about these people because they had left the church. Not just an individual local church, but the church. Here's what John said, 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. We saw that these people were were teaching a, a false gospel. They were denying that Jesus was the Christ. They were saying, we still have the Father, God the Father, the only God. And Jesus was just... He was a man, and he was a teacher, and he was an example, but he was not God in the flesh, the Messiah, the Christ, the chosen one. And so John said, not only do you not have Jesus because of that, but if you don't have Jesus, you don't have the Father either. He looked at them and he said, they're not just confused, they are, he used the word, antichrists. They are outside of the church because they have rejected Jesus. Now, maybe that sits badly with you because they were in the church and then they were outside of the church, and maybe you're like, well, what about that idea of once saved, always saved? Does that mean that they lost their salvation? If you read through 1 John, 
you get the sense that he's dealing with this question quite a lot. What do we do if at some point somebody's in the church and then somebody's outside of the church? They claim to be a Christian, but their life or their later declaration is opposite to that. What do we do with that? Were they saved? Are they no longer saved? And the big witness of the New Testament is one that God is sovereign, like the song we sang this morning, in control, that he holds fast those who belong to him. So when we say once saved, always saved, it's shorthand for the idea of once you become a Christian, you are a Christian for all eternity. You can't be unadopted from the family of God. You are secure in God. So then we look at the people that John's talking about in his letter, and we must come to the conclusion that it's not that they have left the faith, removed themselves from the church, but that their actions are revealing that they were never in the faith. They were never in the church to start with. I want to give you two principles. I didn't make these up. I borrowed them from David Platt, who's a great pastor and church leader and author, he says these two things. One, superficial faith never saves. There's a difference between a superficial faith and an authentic faith. Superficial, you can claim to be a Christian, you can you know, talk the talk and walk the walk and, and be in church, maybe even be a leader in church or be a pastor in church, and yet your, your faith is really just surface level. It's superficial. It is uh, it's like wrapping paper. It's, a, it's like a paint coat. It's, it's like makeup. It's like a new hairdo. But it doesn't change what you are. It doesn't actually save you. One of the pastors that I respected most, and I loved like one of the books that he wrote, I used it so much in my, my youth ministry leadership days. I, just, I would recommend it to every teen. Like, Read this book. This is awesome. And then a few years back, he started kind of getting a little wishy-washy in the things that he was teaching. And now he is, uh, he is divorced, he is no longer a pastor, and he no longer considers himself a Christian. He's completely left. And I, I think the things that you wrote in that book, they were so sound and biblical and excellent. And I would still recommend that book to people today. And yet he has revealed that it was a superficial faith. It was not real. Superficial faith never saves you. But, number two, saving faith always perseveres, always continues on. It makes it to the end. If you are truly saved in Jesus, then that is a work of God in you. So God called you to himself. God made sure that somebody shared the gospel with you. He opened your heart and your mind to understand the gospel. He gave you the gift of faith which you then returned to him by, by turning away from yourself and placing all of your faith in Christ alone for salvation. You took that gift that he gave you, you gave it back, it's exercised as faith, and you were made a new person. But it was all his work. And if he did the work to bring you into his family, he also does the work to keep you into his family, and so you will persevere if you are truly his. The Bible speaks a lot with the word that we use for salvation or being saved, but it tends to talk about it in ways that we don't normally. It tends to talk about it in past, present, and future. Of Christians, the Bible says we are saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. It's this idea that 
we were saved in the past, we were justified, or we would say we were born again, or we were forgiven, or we were made new in Christ. That is a past tense thing. But that as we live our lives, we are continually being saved, being sanctified, being more holy, where God is growing us, maturing us, getting rid of the old, bringing in more of the new, making us more into the image of Christ. And then someday, not in this life, but someday, we will be what the Bible calls glorified. That is, we will be completely conformed to the image of Christ. All of the old, all of the bad will be gone and will be entirely transformed. In Romans 8.30, we read about these ideas. It says, and those whom he predestined, that means those whom he chose, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice that glorified is in the past tense there. It's something that God has already accomplished, even though it's not yet reality for us. It is a done deal for those who have been chosen and called and justified. And I want to encourage you, if you are in Christ, I want you to know that God has saved you. He's done the work to save you, and you are secure in Him for eternity. But if you have a superficial faith or, or no faith, then I, I don't want to give you a false hope, a false encouragement. I want you to know that Superficial faith does not save, and that you need to be saved. So I would invite you that even today, if you are outside of Christ, you can be saved today. You can become a new creature in Jesus today. I think about it this way. John Snyder in the back row there has been fighting cancer for a little while. I think that if John, when he figured out if he had cancer, if he went into his doctor and said, the doctor said, John, you look great. I don't think there's anything to worry about. Just live your life however you want to. I think John would walk out of that and say, I need a new doctor, right? Yeah. John wants a doctor who says, okay, we're doing all these tests and scans and things like that. Here is, in detail, the real truthful situation. Here is what's going on. Here's the plan. It's going to be hard. It's going to be chance. These are the things you're going to have to do. But if we do this, there is hope that you get to continue on for a certain number of years. That's what you, what you want, right, John? That's right. That is what the Apostle John is doing for us in these verses. He's not saying, hey, just relax, you're fine, don't worry about it. He's saying, no, there is a cancer living in you, trying to kill you, and it's going to work. But it doesn't have to work. It doesn't have to kill you. You can be rescued from it. So with that, I'd like to read our whole passage for today. It's 12 verses long. And as I read it, I want you guys to hear how many times family imagery is used in this particular passage. This is 1 John 2, 28 through 3, 10. And now, little children, abide in him. It means live in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, 
But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So lots of family imagery in there. Six times we see the word children. Four times we've got the idea of born or seed. God is said to be our father in here, and Christians are said to be brothers. Twelve references to family in twelve verses. So here's, here's the big idea for today. You may want to write this down on your bulletin if you're taking notes. Assurance is all about adoption. If If you are assured of your salvation, if you want to be assured of your salvation, you must understand the concept of spiritual adoption as children of God. No one is born a child of God. Nobody's born a Christian. Christians are born again, or use different language in the New Testament, adopted in to the family of God. respected pastor and author J.I. Packer in his great book, Desiring God, he says this, what is a Christian? This question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know of is this, a Christian is one who has God as father. Now that leaves out all kinds of details. How do you get to have God as father? What, you know, what is the gospel? What, you know, what do you have to believe? Or do? It leaves out all that stuff, but what he's saying, definitionally, if you are a Christian, the, the thing that is most true, the most important truth about you is that you have God as Father. That is good news. Maybe some of you, you've got kind of a rotten dad. Or maybe you've got no dad. Maybe you've got just an average dad who's not really engaged in your life. And you think of this idea of God being your father, and you're like, that is, that is not such great news. Maybe I'd rather like God as mother or God as grandparent. Now, that's good, because we get all the good stuff from the grandparents, right? Grandparents go easy on us. But this idea of God as father, I'm not, I'm not sure I like that. But God, our heavenly father, is so much greater, so much more fatherly than any earthly father, even the best fathers, pale in comparison to your heavenly father and the great love that he has for you. So let's look at these a little chunk at a time. If we go back to chapter 228, we start here. Now, little children. Again, the family imagery. 
abide, live, dwell in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So in the first verse, John wants to welcome us and he wants to give us confidence. He wants to address us as children who have been saved by God, adopted into his family. And he says, I don't want you to be afraid. I don't want you to shrink back in shame. Do you remember as a child getting caught doing something wrong? And then the parent comes in or the teacher comes in or or whoever the authority is comes in and the the guilt and the shame that you fear and you want to shrink back and you want to hide or, (coughs) excuse me, you want to blame other people. You just want to get out of that situation. John is saying when, when Jesus returns, you don't have to shrink back in fear if you are a child of God. There's, there's no shame there. There's no, there's no cowering in fear there. There is only you as a beloved child coming into the presence of the one who gave his life to save you. The second verse there, verse 29, says that Jesus is the standard of righteousness. So we've got a very inviting verse, now a very challenging verse, saying that Jesus is the standard of righteousness or goodness or purity, and that if, if we are in him, then we are to be living like him. He's going to say that in a few different ways in here. Does that mean that if we sin, we then have lost our salvation? That's not what he's saying. We've seen through the, the first two chapters of John how John has said, if you sin, you have an advocate, Jesus Christ himself, before the judge who pleads your case, who places himself in your guilty position in order to set you free. He says in 1 John 1 that when we sin, he expects it, then we should come to the Father, confess our sins, and the Father is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So he's already addressed twice how Christians are to deal with their sins when they sin. And so he can't be saying, look, from now on, you better be perfect or you're out of the family. That is not what he's saying. And think about it. If your salvation, your continued salvation was dependent on your perfect obedience, You could wake up in the morning and you're like, I haven't sinned at all yet today. But within the first couple minutes, you're toast, right? Even just the thoughts in your head. Or maybe you make it to lunch and you're like, I haven't sinned at all this morning. Look how awesome. Oh, wait a minute. I I just sinned in pride, right? We can't, if, if it was up to us all day long, it'd be saved, not saved, saved, not saved, saved, not saved, right? That's not what John is talking about here. But he is saying, look, the standard of our behavior is Jesus, his righteousness. Now, this next three verses is what I consider the, the heart of this passage. And so I'm going to ask uh, my three younger daughters and the two sets of girls to come up. You guys come up on stage. <coughs> our families were part of uh, family camp at Scioto Hills whoop, this summer. And we memorized these three verses plus a few others from from First John, and uh, they're going to come do this for you. So they have motions with it to help them understand it. You guys come over here, just kind of right in front of the, the microphone. Kaylin, remember you're going to turn up the ones labeled Jessica Booth so we can hear them. You guys take a step forward. So. Don't be afraid. There you go. All right. So they're going to do First John three one through three for us, and then we're going to go ahead and. And study it. So, Caleb, it might be a little too loud. I hear it ringing up here. Okay, girls, ready? Okay, go for it. First John three 
All right, give them a hand, please. Thanks, girls. Katie, would you hand me my water from there, please? All right, so first three verses of First John. When I was a kid, I... I learned a song, I don't know, in Sunday school, youth group or something that went with that first verse, and that's what I always hear, but uh, I'm thankful that they memorized more than just that first part. They did those first three verses, plus a couple others later, which I wasn't going to ask them to do. So let's look at what it says. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. So, beloved people of VCC. John would say to us, and I would say to us, see, open your eyes, comprehend what kind of love the Father has for us. When John writes that, the words that he's using there, um, it it connotes an idea of a a foreign kind of love. So like if, if you lived in one part of the world and you met somebody from a different part of the world, they're a different kind of person, their language, their culture, their dress, their, everything is different. That's, that's what John is talking about here. It's like a, a foreign, completely other, not what you're used to, a different kind of love. That's what he's trying to communicate he said, maybe, maybe you've got a rotten dad or no dad or an okay dad or even a great dad, but the love that your heavenly father has for you is completely another kind, another level. It's like another universe of love. I wonder, do you believe that? Do you, do you believe that the God of the universe loves you as a heavenly father with an otherworldly kind of love. I know that just understanding that transformed John Snyder's life. And I'm, I'm looking forward to him preaching sometime in the next couple months. Hopefully we can work it out, reschedule from when he couldn't do it before. But the, the core of his story is this idea of he finally understood the love of God and it, it transformed his heart. I'm looking forward to, to hearing that from your mouth, John. But I wonder, do you believe that today? Or do you, do you think of God as like a, a if, if he's a father, he's a cruel or a harsh father, and he's just waiting for you to mess up so he can crush you? Or maybe he's a, a sugar daddy that you can manipulate, do the right things, say the right words in order to get what it is you want? Or maybe, maybe God is just a passive dad, because he's got a lot of things to take care of in the universe, and so he doesn't really have time for you, and you just... Maybe he's ignoring you. God is so much better than any heavenly father, even the greatest ones. He cherishes us. He's tenderly affectionate of us. He wants the best for us when we are hurting, when we are beaten up. He comforts us. He holds us when we are broken. He gives us strength when we are weak. He disciplines us in love when we are disobedient, and he pursues us when we go astray. That song we sang this morning, Amazing Grace, is about the pursuit of love. As someone runs from Him, God in His grace 
pursues us. Verse 1 tells us, verse 1 in chapter 3 tells us that the world does not know God. Does not know us. But we, if we're in Christ, do know Him. Verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, speaking of Jesus, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. This is talking about the already not yet of the Christian life. If you are a Christian, you are already saved, but you are not yet what you will become. Not only do you have lots of growing to do in this life, but however far you make it in your growth and spiritual maturity in this life, there's a huge gap between the end of this life and what you will be perfected in the next life. John is saying, Jesus is coming back. You are not what you are going to be, but when you see him, you will become like him. Now, maybe some of us in this room will get to see Jesus while we're still here on earth. Maybe he will come back and we will see him with our eyes. But we've been waiting a long time and that hasn't happened yet. But everyone who is in Christ will see Jesus, whether coming back to this world or dying from this world and seeing him in the next world. And when we see Jesus, John says, we will be like him. That doesn't mean we're Christ's or Messiah or anything like that, but we will be transformed to be like Jesus. This is our hope. This is what we're waiting for. So what do we do in the meantime? We're to live lives that are increasingly more like Him. Live in obedience to Him. Verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. These are strong words, right? If you were going to start a cult like the one down on 49 and 127 that claims that once you are in Christ, you no longer sin at all, you are perfect in thought and deed for the rest of your life, talk to a guy that believes that fully. If you were going to start a cult like that, First John would be like your go-to book, right? Because if you take it out of the context of the whole New Testament, you could take these verses like I just read here and you could say, look, unless, unless you're living a perfect life now, you are still lost. And just, just imagine the pressure in a group like that. Once you've claimed to be in Christ, and then maybe for a few weeks or years or whatever, you're doing pretty good, and then you know you are a fraud, but you can't let anybody see anything that might suggest that you are not actually in Christ. What pressure that must be. What, Paul, what John is talking about here is really habitual lifestyle things, practicing lawlessness. And when we practice lawlessness, we are actually, we're like Satan. We are rebelling against our loving dad. So I wonder, are there sins that you practice? I don't just mean sins that you commit, but sins that you practice, like you do them repeatedly, you plan them, you think about them, you, you treasure them, you get better at them as time goes by. And John would say to you, wake up, wake up, do not assume that you are in Christ. I know that sounds harsh, sounds judgmental, it sounds legalistic, but John is repeatedly saying, beloved little children, 
over and over again. He loves these people. God says these things to us in His Word because He loves us and He wants us to know about the cancer so we can deal with it. Verse 7 now, John swings back to invitation and tenderness just for a moment and then he goes back into challenge. Little children, let no one deceive you. Remember, there are specific people teaching wrong things, trying to deceive them, and so he's warning them against it. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He says, don't be deceived, don't be fooled. The fruit tells you what the tree is. If you have a whole bunch of crab apples growing on you, you cannot claim to be a peach tree. It doesn't work. That's what he's saying here. Those are hard words. But don't you want to know the truth? Don't you want to know? Because you don't have to die with spiritual cancer. You can be free of it. I love what he says there. The reason the Son of God appeared in the first coming of Jesus was to destroy the works of the devil. That is good news for us. Because it doesn't say that Jesus came in order to tell us to destroy the works of the devil. But that he did it. It doesn't say that Jesus came to be an example for us so that we could live good lives. It doesn't say that Jesus came and died to empower us to fight against the devil. It doesn't say that Jesus gave us the knowledge or the education, the information, or the tools that we need in order to defeat the devil. It doesn't say that at all. It says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He is our rescuer. He is our savior. He is the one who did the work for us. And he's also our big brother. You say, wait a minute. What? Yeah. So think about all the family imagery in here. Jesus is the son of God. Christians are adopted into the family of God and referred to as children of God. That makes Jesus our spiritual big brother. Verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Again, the words that John is using here, we can misunderstand them as individual little things. He's really talking about big, habitual, continued rebellion against God. I'm going to do it my way. I don't care. I am in charge. That's really the big idea what he's talking about here. He says, by this it is evident who are the children of God. So here's how you know. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So John brings it back to love. We've seen multiple times in the first few weeks of this that when we're talking about the command that we're to be following, it primarily goes back to that idea of loving our brother. So he he ends this passage with these, these challenging words. He's drawing a line through humanity, saying some people are on this side of the line, they are children of God, and some people are on the other side of the line. And he refers to them as children of the devil. Strong words. If you are here today and you're thinking, wow, if this is, this, if this is reality, then I guess I'm a child of the devil, right? Because what he's saying about these 
children of God. This is not true of me. And if those are the two options, then I'm a child of the devil. If If that's going on in your heart today, then you're sitting in the doctor's office and he's telling you the truth about the cancer. And he's also offering you the cure. That through the love of God, the grace of God, Jesus offers you salvation, new life, adoption into the family of God. You do not have to die a spiritual orphan or a rebellious child of the devil. You can be adopted by God himself. Romans 8.15 says this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba is that Aramaic word for daddy. We, as a family, we love our foster son, Owen. Um, I cannot call him my son yet. We've done the paperwork to adopt him, The county is slow. And so maybe sometime this fall, I will get to legally say, Owen is my son. But at least for right now, I have to say he's my foster son. But every night when I put Owen in bed, one of the things that I pray for him is that that God would increase his abilities. He's got so much brain damage that he just, he can't learn things like regular people. And yet there are some things that he can learn. So God, please multiply, increase his abilities, help him to learn new things. And yet over the last year, he has learned some new things, but he's also unlearned some things that he had before. And that's sad to me. And one of the things that he's unlearned is that he used to refer to me as Abba. He knew that that meant me. He doesn't do that anymore. And that's sad to me. Now, he, he can still tell us that he, he loves us. Sounds like nom, 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 nom. But that's what he means. Very intentional in it. But I wish, I wish he could still understand or even communicate that he thinks of me as Abba. Now, as great as that would be if that came back, how much greater is it that you and I get to address the God of the universe as Dad? Daddy, Father, Abba. That is ridiculous, isn't it? I think about yourself. What right do we have to address the creator and sustainer and judge of the universe as dad? And yet, Paul, writing to the Romans, says that the spirit of sonship has been given to us so that we can address God that way. It's just amazing to me. So I want to leave you with the encouragement. You don't know how much time you got left in this life. But if you're in Christ, whether you die this afternoon or you die 70 years from now, you are in Christ. You are secure in Christ. You have God as your heavenly Father. You've got some waiting to do, though. As you wait, even though you have your heavenly Father ready to welcome you into his presence, there will be lots of things that go wrong in this world. You will struggle. You will face challenges. Your heart will be broken. You will be angry about things. You will be disappointed about things. You will have days where you think, everything is wrong in my life. 
I know, Jesus, you saved me, but it feels like everything is wrong in my life. There will be days like that, right? But persevere. But keep going. Keep walking with your heavenly Father. When you sin, come to him. Confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive your sins. When you sin, know that you have an advocate who stands before the judge and pleads on your behalf, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And allow yourself to long for that family reunion that's coming. Some of you think, I don't even like family reunions. I have to talk to that weird uncle that I have. And uh, the, the kids spill food on me. And it's just, I, I would rather be home watching football than going to a family reunion, right? Some of you think that way. But the family reunion that's coming is not at all like what you've experienced as far as a family reunion. It is going to be amazing. Billions of people perfected, no more sin, singing their hearts out before the throne of God. That's the family reunion. It's coming. How long will it be? We don't know. But we wait. We remain faithful. And when we're not faithful, we confess. God continues to transform us. And one day we will be completely transformed. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. How long, O oh Lord? Ask that question. How long, Lord, will it take before you do this? And what I want to do before we sing that is I just want to read for you again verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Let's pray.